Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the, in the, in the chairs here. So grab one of the ones we've got. It's on page 868. Um, 868 in the Bibles that we provide. So Luke chapter 10. I don't know about you guys, but uh, Christmas is one of my favorite holidays. Kids, any of you guys like Christmas? Anybody? We got a kid on the, we got a couple kids up here. Anybody? Man, I love Christmas. I want you to think about why do you like Christmas? Now for me, this is what Christmas is about. I love the music. I mean, let's just think for a second. You got, you got Elvis, right? Well, I'll have, I'll spare you guys. We've got some Elvis, you know, you got some Dean Martin. Baby, it's cold outside, you know. Um, you got the Beach Boys, Jackson 5, you know. We could go on and on. Man, I love, some of you guys are like, man, I don't, I'm tired of Christmas music. Man, I could listen to it, you know, turn to 106, uh, 106 point, uh, no, 106, 106.7, that's what it is, right? Yeah, just, they're blasting, man. That's what my radio's been tuned to. I love the music. Um, I also, I love shopping. I, I'm confessing, guys, I know you're looking at me and you're thinking, hey, this dude is weird. And, you know, I, I am a little weird, but, man, just growing up, I, I enjoy shopping. I, me and my dad would go with my mom and we would kind of sit and, and watch people. Um, but, uh, man, I always enjoyed um, going out shopping for family, for friends, and I am the best bargain hunter out there. You know, I can probably compete with the best of them. It's just kind of like, it is, it's a competitive nature in me. I'm going to find the best deal ever, you know, and, and then that's what I'm going to buy. And if I can't get a good deal on it, I'm just I'm not buying it. Uh, I, love, I love music. I love shopping. I also love time with family. Now, for me growing up, um, you know, everybody's kind of got traditions. We would always spend Christmas with family, specifically my grandparents. So i got grandparents on both sides of the family. Um, on my dad's side, both of my grandparents have passed away. Um, but uh, on my mom's side, uh, my, my mama and papa Simmons, that's what I call them. I know what you call your grandparents. Mine are mama and papa Simmons. And uh, they live on a, a big piece of land, farm. They used to have cows and horses and huge pecan trees. Now, who likes pecans? We got some pecan lovers there. Now, here was what it meant for Christmas, when we would show up, you know, we would, the kids would love to play in the yard, huge yard, and he would send us out with buckets. And he's basically saying, you guys go and, and, and harvest all my pecans. And, and he, he probably had five or six huge trees. Like when I go and I'm leaving after the service today to drive about 13 hours down south. Um, when I go and see him in a couple of days, he's probably going to have a, a bag of pecans for me. Now, you're probably wondering, hey, John, where, where are you headed in this? I want you to think about it. My, my granddad, Papa Simmons, is about 90 years old now. Uh, imagine him, 90 years old now. His health is, is kind of going downhill. Looking out his front window where he can see all of his pecan trees and all these pecans on the ground ready to be harvested. But he can't do it. Now, when we come to the text today, one of the key parts of the text, Jesus is going to say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Now, when Jesus says that, he's no longer, he's not talking about pecans. Jesus is looking out over the crowds, the city, and he's having compassion on people. He says, these people look like they're sheep without a shepherd, and, and there aren't any laborers. He says, Lord, pray for laborers. And so when we come to Luke 10 today, I know it's the Sunday before Christmas. And you may be asking, okay, John, why not just preach a Christmas text? Um, but here's what we're going to do. There is much to be said about the incarnation and the birth of Christ and the mission of God. Those two go hand in hand. And I'll just I'll give one example here. Every gospel... Every gospel account has a Great Commission passage. Usually, we highlight Matthew 28. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples. Uh, but in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, you guys know what the Great Commission text is in the Gospel of John? He says this, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Did you catch that? Jesus says, as the Father has sent me. What is the picture there? The incarnation, the birth of Christ, Jesus coming into this world. Why did he send Jesus? Je Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus is a part of the mission of God in redeeming, restoring this world and saving sinners. And yet Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Jesus has accomplished salvation, and now we go out and we proclaim. And so I'm going to plead with you today that missions in the incarnation should go hand in hand. And so that's what we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 10. So the main point of the whole text today that I want you to get is this. The need is great for disciples to labor on mission for God. The need is great for disciples to labor on mission for God. For God, And I've got three truths as we go through Luke 10, 1 through 24 that I want to share with you as we walk through the text. And the first one's going to be this. Disciples labor on mission with urgency. Disciples labor on mission with urgency. Look at the text here with me. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Starts out, after this. Now let me just pause here for a second. After this. What's What's this alerting to? It's, it's sequential events here. Let me just go back to chapter 9 because well, this is going to follow what Jesus has, has just done. In chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, Jesus has just talked about the cost of following him. Some disciples have come up and said, Hey, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head at night. He basically says, okay, you want to follow me? Hey, here's the deal. I don't know where I'm sleeping tonight. Are you going to trust me? Another guy comes along and says, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. You know what Jesus says to him? He says here in verse 59, um, hey, let me first go bury my father. What does Jesus say? Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Now, what are we learning here in the cost of discipleship? To be a disciple is to be a proclaimer. Go and proclaim the kingdom. He continues on. Yet another said, Hell, follow you. Jesus said to him, No one who puts the hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then Luke 10.1, after this. So he's just challenged these disciples with, Hey, here's the cost. You go and proclaim. And then this is what he says. After this in 10.1, in 
the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Labors, disciples labor on mission with great urgency. Let's start walking through the text. I want to explain it to you um, and what's going on here. So going back to verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. You hear that? see that word others? Now, what's just happened? In chapter 9, we've got a very similar scenario. Flip back one page to chapter 9. Look what happens here in chapter 9, verse 1. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, And he called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all the demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's a very similar thing. You're going to see, he's going to tell them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money. So now we come to chapter 10, and now he's, he's sending out 72 others. So he's, he sent the twelve. We're going from the twelve disciples now to, to 72 other disciples. And, and, and you may be wondering this. I don't know if some of you guys, there's a, there's a discrepancy here in the text. You'll even notice in your Bible, there's a footnote there on the word 72. You, you can look at the bottom and it says some manuscripts, 70. Well, the NIV and the ESV have 72. Some others like the King James or the New King James or the NAS list 70. So how, how are we, I just want to do a little sidebar here. And when you come to a text, and you're looking at two versions, and you've got 70 and 72. Man, what do we do here? How do we respond to discrepancies here in the text? Before we jump into it, let me just say this. It is amazing the, the accuracy that we do have. Now, here's kind of how we, how we got to the text here. We affirm that the original manuscripts are are perfect, without error, inerrant, infallible, no error. The original manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts. You know what we have? Thousands of copies of the original manuscripts. So you've got the original manuscripts, and then you had scribes. No computers, okay? You've got scribes copying these by hand. And as we take all of these manuscripts and evaluate them, you know what we see? 99% of what we have matches up. Isn't that amazing? 2,000 years later, we've got these manuscripts and we have thousands of them. You know what a lot of other religions do? They wipe out all but one. They want to do away with any 
discrepancies. Let me say, why, why keep all these texts around that have potential? Well, it gives validity to the text. We're not trying to hide anything other, anything, anything there. So we've got 99% accuracy, and then the, the 0.1% or 1% that we've got discrepancy, you know what? It affects no major doctrine. So, so this, even as we look at 70 or 72 here, let me just pose this question. Does it affect anything, the, uh, any main theological doctrine of Christianity, whether it's 70 or 72? No, it doesn't. And most of our discrepancies are similar to this. But I do want to ask this. Okay, we, we should just ask, okay, which one probably is most likely? And when you come to some of these, one of the main principles that you usually ask is, what's the most difficult reading? Because it's, it's usually argued what a scribe would do is they wouldn't make the, the reading difficult. They would make it more understandable. So the more difficult reading is probably the most original. So then we ask, okay, is there any reason for a scribe to change it from 70 to 72 or from 72 to 70? Well, when we go to the Old Testament, there, the number 70 has great symbolism. For instance, there were 70 elders appointed by Moses. There were 70 nations of the earth listed in Genesis 10 through 11. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. We see there's great connection there. But when we go to 72, we don't see that as often. Well, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Testament, of, of the Old Testament, there were, there were 72 translators. And, and the Septuagint changes the 70 nations to 72, but that's weaker than 70. So some of you guys are getting bored right now. I'm just, my main point here is that most likely, most commentators say that 72 is probably the more difficult reading because the scribe would want to change it to 70 because of the Old Testament. Um, so, again, it's not going to change anything theologically. What's the point that I want you to see? You go from 12 disciples in chapter 9 to 72 disciples plus the 12 in chapter 10, and then what's the very first thing he tells them to do? Look at verse 2 there. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. First thing he commands them to do, pray for laborers. You get the picture? 12 disciples. 12 plus 72 disciples. 12 plus 72 plus play, pray for laborers. What's the point of the text? The mission is not just for a select few. To be a disciple of Christ is to live on mission for Christ. That is the whole point of what's going on here in the text. And how does he send them out? He sends them out two by two. Now, I think there's some significant things here. We don't do mission alone. Even when you turn to Paul in the New Testament, how do you see Paul doing ministry? He's always got somebody laboring with him. You've got Paul and Timothy. You've got Paul and Barnabas. You, we could go on there, right? We don't do it alone, but this may also be alluding to the fact that later on, what happens when we go on mission, the disciples go and they go to a town that rejects them. He says, you dust off your feet. Well, in the Old Testament... There had to be two witnesses to, to validate a testimony. And so this may be sending them out two by two that would validate as they're speaking judgment on some of these cities. Let me just pose a question to you. You may feel that following Jesus is very well within your realm of capabilities, but proclaiming Jesus? Any of you feel that? Hey, I, I can follow Jesus, but mission proclaiming? 
No, that's not for me. But that's not what the text says. Jesus says, go, proclaim the kingdom of God. We've got this picture here of multiplying disciples that are living on mission. Do you see the need around you? I mean, just picture here. Jesus is saying, the harvest is plentiful. As you look around, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, are you burdened by the lostness around you? Let me, let me share an example. I don't know if many of you guys are man. Anthony Paul up here. Anthony's my boy. Um, we've known each other a couple months now, but spent some good time together. Um, let me just share a little briefly about his story. Anthony grew up in Medford. He went to Medford High. Um, Anthony never heard the gospel until he was 18 years old. You know what happened the first time he heard the gospel? He believed it and got saved. There are many Anthonys in Greater Boston. What do you think about it? 18 years old, never heard the gospel. His friend invites him over to his house, sits down. I think he invited a bunch of your a bunch of friends together, and this guy shares the gospel, and a number of them believe it. Man, the lostness and this is what this is why we're here. The reason Redemption Hill, the reason we came two and a half years ago, the reason we're here today is because the harvest is plentiful, the need is great. There are many of the four point Nine million people in greater Boston and roughly 2.1%, the statistics say, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So of the 4.9 million, that's 4.78 million that are just like Anthony. Man, are you burdened for the loss? Hey, you know what? Maybe you're here today and, and you're just kind of searching this Jesus thing out and, and maybe that's you. Maybe this is the first time you're kind of hearing about just this Jesus thing. I'm glad you're here. Because I've got great news for you. I want you to continue listening. Do you see the need around you? Boston, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire. Look, the need is great in New England. What about Canada? You guys ever thought about the lostness that is in Canada? We've got a buddy going to Toronto. In Canada, there is one Southern Baptist church for every 100 and 67,000 people. Now, there are other churches there. I'm just using this as one example. You guys know we're a Southern Baptist church, even though we don't proclaim that because we're in the north. But it basically means we partner for the sake of missions. In, in Massachusetts, you know what the stats are? It's one SBC church for 43,000 people. If you were to go to the south anywhere, it'd be about one for every five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. When you go to Canada, it's one for every 167,000 people. What about the world? I don't know if you guys have ever visited this website called the Joshua Project. Do you know how many people groups are in the world? Now, when we talk about people groups, it's, it's defining people not by a nation, it's by their, by their people group, by their tongue. It says that there are six, over 16,000 people groups. Now, do you know how many of these people groups that they would say are unreached, unengaged people groups? you know how many? Over 7,000. Over 7,000 unreached people groups. And these 7,000 contain 40%, 42% of the world's population. So the world's population is what? Roughly 7 billion right now? So 2.9 billion of the 7 billion of the world's population 
are in unreached people groups. India. we got a few folks here from India. Of the 7,000 people groups, you know how many of these are in India? Over 2,300 are in India alone, representing 1.1 billion people. Are you broken by the lostness? As Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out labor. So do you see the need around you is the question. Secondly, that I want to pose to you is will you pray for laborers? I mean, this is the first command in the text. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Will you? Will you spend time laboring in prayer, saying, God, send out laborers. The need is great here and to the nations. Let me give you an example here. You know what happens in the New Testament? Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, you've got Paul and the early church there. It says they're gathered together, fasting and worshiping the Lord. And as they were doing this, it says, the, the Lord said, set apart Paul for the work. And then it says, after fasting and prayer, Paul was sent off. Do you know what happens after Acts 13 with Paul? Do you know how many letters of the New Testament we have that are attributed to Paul? We see the letters of the New... After Acts 13, this fasting and prayer, Paul is sent off, and it launches a mission movement that changes the course of history. That he goes to the... By the end of his missionary work, he is going all the way with plans to go all the way to Spain. Because he's writing his letter to Rome. He's like, I want to come to Rome, but my goal is to go all the way to Spain. And then, man, the gospel has come to us. It all started in Acts 13. They were fasting and praying, and the Lord sent them off. Do not underestimate here as we reflect on the mission of God. Look, God is sovereign. God will accomplish His mission. But the means by which he accomplishes his missions is the prayers of the saints as we beg and plead, send out laborers. And the third question I'd pose to you is this. Not only will you pray, but will you labor? You see, it may be easy. Hey, you may be even say, hey man, I can pray. I'll spend a few extra hours in prayer, but, but to actually go labor in the harvest? And even that imagery, right? This picture I'm giving that bucket to go get pecans. That's labor, right? I mean, that's toil. I'm on my knees. I'm picking them up. I'm dry. I mean, this picture of the harvest, this isn't easy. It's, it's labor. We labor. Let me just put a question I want to The text is posing to you. Will you labor? And, and here's, what, here's what we see here. After this verse 2 is that Jesus is going to tell them, all right, here's how you're going to do this mission. Here's how you're going to labor. So let's kind of walk through. Man, how do we labor for the sake of the gospel? Well, here's how we're going to do it. The first thing that we see here in verse 3, he says here, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And I think the implication is this, is you don't gain converts by force. This picture of lambs, man, a lamb's not going to hurt anybody. And so as we go and, and, and as we want to proclaim the kingdom, we don't do this by force. You may see other religions. How do, how do these other religions gain steam? It is by force. That's not so with us. We go and, and we proclaim. We display and we declare. We love people and we declare the message. God alone saves. 
We don't do this by force. That's the first implication there. And then he continues on. He says, verse 4, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. You trust the Lord to provide for your needs. Many of you may be asking, hey, if I go and labor for the sake of the gospel, man, how am I going to do this? You may have fears. You may have concerns. Man, here's what Jesus says. Will you trust me? Maybe your lack of mission is due to a lack of trust in the Lord's provision. Will you trust the Lord that he'll provide, that he'll give you the words to say, that he'll sustain and meet every single one of your needs? And not only that, he says, and greet no one on the road. What's your first implication there? You read it, man, am I supposed to be rude to people? I mean, that's, that's not what he's saying here. Um, what he's saying here, man, greet no one on the road. Greetings were, were long. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate it, bud. Greetings were long and drawn out. And the, the whole point is, is stay focused. Stay focused. You get to greeting people on the road and you're going to get distracted. So let me just say, how easy is it for us? How easy is it for you just to get distracted? I mean, we've got so much going on in life. We've got family. We've got work. We've got neighbors. We've got, we've got houses. We've got, we've got all these things we've got to take care of. Man, have you, have you just gotten distracted from the mission? And maybe, maybe, what, maybe what needs to happen today is just to refocus and say, Lord, would you refocus? This is why you have saved me and this is why I'm a disciple is because I'm supposed to proclaim. God, focus me. Maybe going into the new year, there just needs to be a refocus in your life because you've been distracted by so many things. You stay focused on the mission. What's he say? He continues on, verse 5. Whatever house you enter, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Our message is a message of peace. It is, th- this peace is a picture of the messianic salvation that comes and, and makes us whole. It makes us right with God. It brings blessings. But know this. It must be accompanied with faith, right? What's it say here? If, the, if a son of peace is there, your peace will remain, but if not, it will return to you. Look, we can go and proclaim peace, but people must respond. You must respond with this peace. So we bring peace, and then you may or may not receive compensation. He continues on, verse 7, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to to house. Now let me just pause here for a second. A lot of times we think, hey, labor, if I'm going to labor for the sake of the gospel, then I've got to be paid for it. Now, what Jesus says here is, hey, you go into a house, they provide food, you eat it because a labor deserves its wages. You're going to labor on sake of the gospel. Now, Paul actually references this. I want to show you a few references here. Later on in Paul's writings, 1 Timothy 5, look what Paul says. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. You see the similar language there? That labor language? For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now one little side note here. What does Paul just refer to? He just quotes Luke. And what does he call it? He calls it Scripture. So even as you're putting your whole theology of the Scripture together, Paul is, is, is looking at Luke here, and he says, that's Scripture. Paul's affirming it. But beyond that, 
what is the implication here? The implication is Paul's saying, hey, elders who rule well, it's okay to receive compensation. On the other hand, let me show you another one. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Again, he's referring to this in Luke. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What does he do here? And 1 Timothy says, look, elders who labor well, they're considered worthy of double honor. A labor deserves his wages. Here he says, on the other hand, the Lord commanded those who live by the gospel, should, those who, who proclaim the gospel should get their living, but I'm not making my use of that right. So the implication is, look, you may or may not receive compensation. Paul refused. He said, I have the right to get paid for proclaiming the gospel, but I don't want to use it. So the point is this. I mean, sometimes we labor and we do it for the Lord. And, and there's no compensation. And for many of us, that's probably going to be it. On the other hand, let's not go too far because Paul also affirms, hey, it's okay for some to labor and, and receive pay for what they're doing. Um, so don't, I don't want, we can talk about that more later if you have questions, but that's the implication we have of the text here. Uh, he continues on. Verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what was set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. What do we do? The next way we go about mission is you proclaim the coming of the kingdom. Mission is about a proclamation. What is the kingdom? We read through the text. You see this kingdom language come up all the time. Well, here's this. The kingdom is the rule and reign of God in people's hearts and lives. And here's how it's manifested. The kingdom is manifested by people following Jesus and his teaching. And then secondly, by these miraculous healings. Did you get that? So you're going to proclaim in the kingdom. And he says, heal and proclaim. When you proclaim, you say this, follow Jesus. But yet it was accompanied by healings. Why all these healings? You ever thought, hey, why, why are these healings accompanied when we read in the Gospels? Well, here's the point. The healings are a foretaste of the kingdom. You know what life is going to be like in the kingdom? There will be no more death. And so that's why when we look at the life of Christ in the Gospels, what do we see Jesus doing? He's raising the dead. He's giving a foretaste of the kingdom. He's heal healing. You know, in, in the kingdom, there'll be no more sickness. We read in Revelation, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sickness. You see, in the kingdom that Jesus is initiating, He is going to redeem and restore and make all things right. Hey, man, are any of you guys sick, weak, tired, wore out? Man, the message of the kingdom is this. God will make all things right. And, and here's the deal. We, we may not get physical healing in this earth. I believe God has the power to do it. And I'll pray for healing, but I do know this. I may get cancer. I may get sick. And you know what? Eventually, all of us are going to go in the grave. And I mean, that's the point. We're all going to end up in the grave. But the message of the kingdom is this. There's hope. 
And the hope is this. When Christ returns, He's going to make it all right. We're going to be raised from the dead just like Jesus raises the dead. And our bodies are going to be healed just like these bodies are healed. And so when, when they're going out on mission, they're saying follow Jesus and follow Jesus because He is going to make all things right. Because this is the greatest hope in the world. It's found in the gospel. So we go and we proclaim the kingdom. But what do we also see here? Look at verse 10. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, here's what we see, guys. You will face reception and rejection. You see, on the one hand in the text here, we see the harvest is plentiful. But on the other hand, we see there are going to be those that reject you. And so he says, when those reject you, you, you enter, you, you go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I'd say it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. You see Paul doing this. And it's Luke, do you know who writes Acts? Luke writes Acts. So Acts is like the second part of the gospel of Luke. We go into Acts, and it's describing Paul, and this very thing happens. Paul goes into a town, they reject him, and it says he's dusting the feet off. He's proclaiming this, this judgment on this town because they rejected the message. And then in Luke here, it says, it will be more bearable for Sodom. We know Sodom. In Genesis 19, man, wicked city. He says it's more bearable for Sodom than for this city. Why? What's the text teaching us? Increased understanding means increased responsibility. You see, this town that's rejecting Jesus has seen Jesus. And they've seen His works and rejected it. There's increased responsibility. Now before we move on, let me just pose a question to you. How have you responded to the message of the kingdom? How have you responded? Have you received it and embraced it with repentance and faith? Or have you rejected it? That's a message that the text is posing before every single person today. Because here's the deal. The kingdom is going to come. Jesus has inaugurated and initiated the kingdom, and the kingdom will be consummated at the return of Christ. It's going to come. Hey, I know many were saying, hey, the Mayan calendar, Friday, the world's going to end. Hey, it didn't end. But don't let that fool you. There will be an end. Christ will return. And we will all stand before him, had a conversation with a lady at my work. I actually finished up my last night at P.F. Chang's as a server. Many of you guys know I, ser- I was a server at P.F. Chang's for two and a half years. My last night was Friday night. On Thursday, one of the cooks comes up, says this to me, Hey, John, is the world going to end tomorrow? One of your coworkers says this to you. How do you respond? Here's what I said. I said, To be honest with you, I don't know. No one knows. That's what the text says. Um, I was like, I'm not going to place any faith in the Mayan calendar. I don't don't think they know either. I said, but the, the more important question is this. If it were to end, would you be ready? And she responded to me and she said, "Um, to be honest with you, uh, only when I'm high. You see, because her background is a Muslim background. And if you know anything about Muslim religion, it's basically this. It's as long as your good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, 
when you face the judgment. As long as, long as there are enough to tip over the scales, you're good. And that was her, she, she only was afraid when she was high because she, she said, I'm, I'm sinning, I'm, I'm doing something bad. She acknowledged that she was a sinner and all she could do was fear the judgment. But the message of the gospel, look, let me just say the difference about, about all other religions and Christianity. You see, all other religions is going to be based on this. Let's make sure your good outweighs the bad and you'll never know until the judgment. But with the gospel and the kingdom, you can know. Because the truth of the gospel is you will never outweigh the scales enough to get into heaven. That's the message. So if you're here today and you're trying to figure out, man, this whole, man, how do I get right with God? There's nothing you can ever do to tip the scales in your favor. So that's bad news, right? The good news of the kingdom is this. Jesus lived a perfect life and he died on the cross to take your punishment. So the way that you can know today, man, if I were to die today and go stand before God in heaven and he were to say, John, why should I let you in? The way I can know today is I would stand there and this is what I would say. I would say, God, there is no reason you should let me in. I'm a sinner. But I would say the only reason you should let me in is because Jesus died for my sin and I placed my faith in Jesus. I don't get into heaven today because I'm a preacher. I don't get into heaven today because I read my Bible, because I'm in church. I get into heaven today because of Christ and Christ alone. And, and you know what? I can lay in bed at night and not be afraid. I don't fear. You can set another projection for the end of the day, you know, however you want. That doesn't scare me because that's the hope I have in the gospel. Do you have that peace today? Maybe for some of you to come to there would be no greater time than Christmas than to come to Jesus and to have your fears removed and to say, God, take my fear away. Give me peace. You can do that through repentance. Repent, turn of your sin, and belief. Have you done that? Will you do it today? Disciples labor with great urgency. Let me just, I want to give you a few practical ways now, just kind of going back. Man, how can you really labor in greater Boston? Let me give you a few practical ways here. First one, eat with non-Christians. This is pretty simple. Do you have neighbors? Invite your neighbors over. Do you have coworkers that aren't believers? Eat with them. Spend time with them. Um, host their families into your house. Hey, let me give you an example. Man, I love football. I know not everybody's a sports guy, but you know what that we're going to encourage you guys to do for the Super Bowl? Throw a party and invite a bunch of lost people, a bunch of non-Christians, and, and, and spend time with them. Watch the Super Bowl and spend time. Get to know them. Eat with them. That's a great opportunity. First one. Second one. Walk, don't drive. You know what's so, Tim, man, this is me. We like convenience. But you know what? I love my wife. You know what the one thing she started doing? We live about three-quarters of a mile from Ava's school. This past year, you know what she started doing? Every day they walk to school. And you know what happens because of that? She's met many neighbor, neighbors because she's just walking down. We've met um, the, the former pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church down here, had some good conversations with him. We've met a lot of neighbors. She, there's a crew now that just kind of walks to school together. Just get out and walk. And, and look, and, and, and look to try to meet your neighbors. Get to know them. Third implication or encouragement. Get out. Don't stay in the house. Just get out. It's so tempting, man, just to, man, I know it's winter. 
And just to kind of coop up. It's cold outside, but then get out of the house. Be around people. Fourth one, be a regular. I'll tell you this. I get gas at one place. And I know everybody there by name, and they know what I do. I eat at a lot of the same places. I shop at a lot of the same places. Be intentional. You see, a lot of times when we think about mission, man, how to labor, it's like, man, I don't have time to do missions. Well, what I'm telling you here is, do you eat three times a day? Most of you eat three times a day. Well, why not just do it with non-Christians? Most of you are getting gas or shopping or doing, just be intentional. The whole purpose is, how can we be intentional and focused in our mission in the city? What about this? Hobby with non-Christians. What are some hobbies you enjoy? Flag football, painting, music. Here's one that we started. Um, our kids, we got them in a, in a local t-ball league. And so they did t-ball. And then the next time it came around, you know what I did? I offered to coach. Now I'll just say this, man, I, I never really played much baseball, but they were like, hey, if you, we need coaches. So you know what that allowed me to do? We were able to get in the community and I'm coaching with just a bunch of good old boys in Medford that really aren't connected in any local church. And we've got to make some good relationships. We're actually going to be having dinner with one of the coaches and their kids in January coming over to our place. Hobby with non-Christians. Foster relationships. Um, talk to your coworkers. What might this mean? You may mean you need to arrive a few minutes early to work. Or spending some of your breaks to be intentional. Or inviting them over to your home. Participate in city events. Whether it's fundraisers or, or other things that are going on in the city. Concerts, festivals, parades. And then finally, serve your neighbors. Serve your neighbors. Um, how can you serve your neighbors? Maybe it's baking them a back, batch of cookies to take it next door to them um, in the next few days. Maybe it's watching out for them. Say, hey, I'll get your mail for you while you're gone. Maybe it's helping rake some leaves up or shovel some snow and them not having to ask you. What if, what, all right, man, I, you guys know I'm a weather guy. I hope it snows soon. I hope we get a white Christmas, all that. Um, man, what if you just randomly just went in and plowed or shoveled your neighbor's driveway or steps and they didn't have to ask you to do it? Now, I'm not saying you got to do it every time, but wouldn't that be a great just opportunity to serve your neighbor's other, I mean, one other practical question I want to pose, man, how can you labor well for the nations? I mean, just four quick things. Why not spend a week of your year on a mission trip? I mean, most of us get a vacation week or something. Why not say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take one week of vacation, I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to, I'm going to do something. It may be in, in North America, it may be Canada, it may mean the nations. And that's one of, the, one of our goals for 2013, is to get our first mission trip um, with the Redemption Hill. Another one may mean to say, you know what, I want to, I want to, I want to give generously. Um, pray earnestly. And then finally, support missionaries. I mean, these are some ways, man, you can go, you can pray, you can give, you can support and encourage. How well are you laboring? That's the first truth I want us to think through today. Let's, let's move on to the second one. Disciples labor on mission with faithful proclamation. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who has ears, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Who are these cities here? Chorazin, we're uncertain of the location there. But Bethsaida is where Jesus fed the 5,000. We could go back and look and see that. Capernaum is where he started and did a number of his miracles. He healed demons. Um, he cast out demons. He healed a centurion's, centurion's servant. And you know what? Most of these rejected Jesus. So he's, he's, he's casting woes on these cities and he's contrasting that with Tyre and Sidon from the Old Testament. These were two well-known wicked cities similar to Sodom. And again, he's saying it would be more bearable for them, or if, if you had done these works in front of them, they would have repented, but you guys have not repented. So here are a few implications. The harvest is plentiful, but there will be rejection. There will be rejection. It is amazing sin's ability to blind people in the face of God's working is great. Look, God is working. God is sending out labors. God opens blind eyes, but the power of sin is great. So this is just, and hopefully this is encouraging to you. Hey, you're going to face rejection. Hey, how do you think about this in relation to the gospel? Why should I fear rejection? I've already been accepted by God. Why does it matter what anybody else thinks about me as long as God doesn't reject me, right? Second implication is increased understanding means, means increased response ability. Increased understanding means increased responsibility. And then finally, the kingdom will come regardless of one's response. He mentions here in verse 15, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. What is, what is Hades here? I've, I've got Revelation for us. Revelation 20. Um, we can see it references Hades. to kind of just help you think theologically here. It says, um, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Guys, we should be broken with tears over this. We don't read this and rejoice, even though God will make all things right. We should read this and we should be broken. The harvest is plentiful. We see we see the, the lostness in our city, and then we read about this, that, that hell and heaven are two realities here. And, and look, I know what some of you guys are thinking. I'm going to, I want to dialogue with you for a second. How can a loving God send people to hell? Anybody wrestle with that question? How can a loving God send people to hell? I mean, we hear it all the time. I mean, this is, now, I'll be honest, this is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines, which basically says if you reject Jesus, you will go to hell. I want to handle it carefully, but I do want to affirm a few things. God is loving. 
but God is also just. I want you to think about this for a second. Tim Keller says this, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even they themselves, you get angry. Can anybody relate with this? I love my wife and I love my kids. And because of that love, that can lead me to anger if I see somebody hurting them. So why? Look, this is personal experience that we can relate love and we can see that there can be justice and a desire for justice brought about. I'd also say this. The justice of God promotes peace. What if there's no hell? And what if all of the wicked deeds that are ever done on this earth are never accounted for? You know what that would lead me to do? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. You guys follow me? But what can, what can promote peace in my life? You come and you do something to me or to my family, how can I turn the other cheek? How can I love my enemies? You know how I can do it? It's because I know this. The scriptures say, God will make all things right. That's what Romans 12 says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so if you take away hell, well then what you're going to have, it's going to promote violence. I'm going to take it into my own hand, but how can we foster peace and greatness in this world? Hey, God will take matters into it. God will take care of things, and I'll trust that, and I'll leave it to God. I'll just respond by, by saying this. In short, hell is simply, one, is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into affinity. That's what Keller says. Did you catch that? In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into affinity. If you want to read some more on this, we've got a book back there, The Reason for God. It's got a whole chapter on, on this. How could a loving God send people to hell? I would also pose another question. How can a holy God allow people into heaven? I think that ought to be a question you ought to wrestle with. We always ask this question, how could God send somebody to hell? I want to pose this, why should God let you into heaven? Why should a holy, perfect God allow sinners into his heaven? And then finally, disciples speak on behalf of him. The one who hears you hears me. This is pretty wild. He says, if, you, if they hear you, well, they've heard me. A disciple speaking, they're speaking the authority of Christ. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. And so when we go on, a mission, on mission, Jesus in the Great Commission says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. When we teach, as, as we teach according to the Word of God, we're teaching the words of Christ and the Word of God. And when people reject, they're not rejecting me, they're rejecting God and the one who sent me. Last truth, and I'll... I'll pick up the pace here. The last truth is this. Disciples labor on mission with joyful humility. Disciples labor on mission with joyful humility. Look at verse 17. So they've gone on mission. And it says, the 72 returned with joy. You know, just pause right here. Shouldn't we all respond this way? Man, if you're going to go on mission for God, 
and return, shouldn't there be great joy? Man, I can, Lana, she's in my community group. I just see the joy. She went and spent three or four weeks over in Indonesia and coming back and just see the joy. Man, serving the Lord on mission is not a burdensome thing. It ought to be filled with great joy. So we see this here. They return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what do we see here? They come back and they're like, hey, Jesus, the demons are subject to us. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this may be a reference to Isaiah 14. Um, we see some similar um, comparisons there. We're not sure if this is a vision, if this is just a remark. But the point of it that Jesus is getting at is that the disciples' mission and ministry reveals that the reality of the kingdom will destroy the works of Satan. Satan falling from heaven the disciples' ministry, the entering of the kingdom is going to destroy the works of Satan. We see this. We'll go to Revelation and we see that Satan is going to be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire. The kingdom will destroy the works of the evil one. But what does Jesus say here? He says, even though you've got authority, and here the point is this, man, I, I was tempted to bring a snake into I'm just kidding, guys. Um, and we don't do any snake handling here. Um, and, and the point of the text here isn't that we can test God. I mean, I was even reminded, a friend reminded me the other day, man, in Jesus, um, when he's tempted, what does he say? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan says, throw yourself off this cliff. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The point here is not that we can just test God. The point here was to display that, man, the mission of God comes with the authority of God, and it has power over all enemies. So I'm not going to tempt or test God. The point isn't for us to, to do that. The point of us is to display our authority comes from Christ and our power comes from Him and this mission will succeed. God is sovereign. But don't rejoice in that. See what He says to the disciples? Man, don't rejoice that you've got this authority or power. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Man, as you leave today, can I challenge you with something? Walk in great joy. Because what do we have two pictures of here? We have two pictures of cities who rejected the kingdom. And where are they cast down to? Hades. And on the other hand, we have disciples who have re received the kingdom and responded with repentance and faith. And their names are in heaven. And what the text is proposing for you is where will you, where will be your destiny? Will you line up with the cities who reject Jesus and are cast into hell? Or will you line up with the disciples who respond and their names are written in heaven? And there is great joy and delight. And notice what he says here. He says, rejoice that, um, that your names are written in heaven. There is a secure salvation here. Not because of anything I've done, but because of Christ. And then finally, 21 to 24, and we'll wrap up. In that same hour, he rejoiced 
So not only do you have the disciples rejoicing, we have Jesus rejoicing. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is rejoicing at the way that salvation is administered. He says, God, I thank you and I rejoice that you haven't revealed salvation to the wise and understanding, but to babies. Now, here's what this doesn't mean. Jesus isn't saying that we should be passive and unthinking and throw our minds out the window. That's not what he's saying. Many people look at Christianity and it's like, man, it's just a straight jacket. You're not supposed to think. You're just supposed to be brainwashed. That's not what he's saying. We are to think critically and use our minds for the glory of God. The point of the text is salvation comes to babies. Let me ask you this. What does a baby have to offer to God? What does a baby have to offer to you? Nothing. Baby can't feed itself. The baby offers nothing but need. And here's the point of salvation. Salvation comes to people who have nothing to give but their need. So if you're here today and you say, man, I want salvation, let me just say this, there's nothing you can do to earn it. If you want a salvation that you can earn, God doesn't have anything to offer. But you want a salvation that He offers freely to those who need it, it's there and you receive it. It is by grace through faith. This is the salvation that comes from God. And you know what we also see? We see an intimate relationship between Jesus and the Father. This is probably one of Luke's strongest Christological statements where he says, all things have been handed over to be my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the, who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. And as we wrap up today, do you know the Son? If you know the Son, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, your name will be written in heaven. And there should be great joy. Guys, as we move into celebrating Christmas, let's have great urgency. Will you pray for the Lord to burden your heart for the need in greater Boston and the nations? Will you labor for the sake of the gospel? Will you be faithful in proclaiming? People will reject you, but our cause to be faithful. And then finally, will you respond with a joyful humility, giving great thanks to God. When you celebrate Christmas on Christmas morning, be reminded of this, that God is good and His salvation is great. And have great joy and delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank You for Your words today. Lord, help us to respond and be like the disciples and have uh, an eternity in heaven. God, may we not be like those who reject you. Lord, I pray even today you would send laborers from this room. Raise up and send laborers to labor in Boston, to labor in New England, to labor among the nations. God, break us with this great need. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.